The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Short Bowel Syndrome Impact Initiative, an initiative to individualize treatment and improve the pediatric to adult healthcare transition, featuring Dr. Sam Cheng from the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, Dr. Angela Pham from the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, Kimberly Iglesias from UF Health in Gainesville, Florida, Daniel Stewart from UF Health Pediatric GI in Gainesville, Florida, and Dr. Janice Taylor from the University of Florida College of Medicine in Gainesville, Florida. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash SWN860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and this is Sam Chen. Uh, I'm Associate Professor of uh, University of Florida uh, medical director of uh, UF uh, Pediatric Intestinal Rehab Program. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about uh, diagnosis and management of pediatric short bowel syndrome. You know, short bowel syndrome is a rare but a really debilitating uh, disorder, um, a serious state of malabsorption. It is most commonly uh, caused uh, condition and caused intestinal failure in children. It occurs uh, after resection or loss of a major portion of small bowel due to congenital or acquired reasons. In pediatric patient, short bowel syndrome is defined by either the need for parental nutrition for six weeks to 60 days after bowel resection or a residual small bowel length of less than 25 to 30% of expected length for age. It is usually caused by congenital defects such as uh, intestinal uh, atresia, stenosis, gastroschisis, or even Hirschsprung disease. It can also uh, caused by uh, necrotizing uh, enterocolitis, that's the one of the most common cause, or midgut um, volvulus. Therefore, uh, the, uh, ma- ma- the, the most majority of the pediatric short bowel syndrome occurs at birth or shortly uh, uh, or earlier, during earlier infancy. Regardless of the etiology, children with uh, short bowel syndrome cannot absorb and digest food normally. Consequently, patients with short bowel syndrome often present with uh, malabsorption signs and symptoms. So in short bowel syndrome, every patient is different and you will never see two patients alike. However, based on the anatomy of uh, uh, remnant uh, bowel, uh, short bowel syndrome can be uh, classified or categorized into three general types. Type one is endogenostomy. And patients have lost most of the small bowel, as you can see from this slide, and the entire colon. So patients under this category can get dehydrated very quickly and whatever they eat comes right out. So this patient has the worst outcomes. In uh, type two um, is the jejunal uh, colic and uh, anastomosis. And then uh, also this uh, patient can do very well also. And most patients uh, have weight loss and severe undernutrition and can, which can last for months to years. And type 3 is jejunal ileum and anastomosis. This 
patient seems to do the work and uh, to do the best. So uh, patients with short bowel syndrome often have also intestinal failure. So what is intestinal failure? So intestinal failure uh, describes the failure of intestinal function, unlike short bowel syndrome, which is used to describe more about the failure of the anatomy. So intestinal failure occurs when um, the intestine does not properly absorb and digest food normally. Uh, intestinal failure, because of this, so uh, patients with intestinal failure and short bowel syndrome often uh, have excessive fluid and electrolyte losses, inability to absorb adequate uh, energy and macronutrients, and inability to absorb um, vitamins and minerals, with a poor growth and then failure to thrive, intestinal also dysmotinities, dilatations, and even stasis. And patient often requires IV nutrition or total uh, parental nutrition due to uh, inability to maintain fluid, electrolytes, and, uh, and nutrient balance. According to the severity of intestinal dysfunction and whether acute or, or, or chronic, uh, intestinal failure can also categorized into three types. Type one uh, is acute, short-term, and usually self-limiting conditions. Um, patients under this category usually requires TPN briefly only for a few days or a few weeks. In type two, um, patient um, usually has a, it's a prolonged acute condition. Um, patient usually stay, metabolic stable, and then requires complex this uh, multidisciplinary care and parental nutrition support over a period of weeks to months. However, in type three, patient usually uh, uh, is a chronic condition. Also, um, patients metabolically stable, and they are usually require parental support uh, over months to years. So, what happened after bowel resection? So, intestinal adaptation occurs. So. Intestinal adaptation uh, describes the physiological change to the um, remnant bowel. It begins after, uh, short after bowel resection and typically lasts one year, one to two years, or even longer. Um, three treatment options can be used to facilitate the adaptation. That is uh, nutritional therapy, pharmacotherapy, and the surgery. Um, this will be discussed later in more details by Mr. Stewart, Dr. Farm, and then Dr. Taylor. However, what I like to emphasize here is um, provision of oral and enteral nutrition is uh, the foundation. It stimulates the, the creep cell hyperplasia, villus hypertrophy, and then enteral hormone production and, and pancreatic secretions. As a consequence, um, the intestinal uh, surface area increased and the crypts deeper and the villus taller. And then as a result, the, the, uh, the intestine uh, become longer and wider. Also, um, both short bowel and the colon can undergo uh, adaptive change to accommodate uh, anatomy. The ileum is the most adapted. It can even undergo colonic cell manipulation, followed by colon. Also, uh, colon has the potential to develop ileum cells. And the genome, the genome uh, has the poor adaptation potential. 
the, the predictors for successful um, intestinal adaptation, um, including the length of the remaining small bowel, the presence of um, the colon, and the presence of ileum secret valve, and then the, the low bilirubin as also uh, predictors. So patient um, with short bowel requires uh, parental support. So while this uh, parental support um, provides important nutritional support necessary for maintaining health and uh, growth, and also providing time required for intestinal adaptation, it can also generate um, many complications. So IFOP, so intestinal failure associated liver disease. Um, this is a, so it's mild, this mild uh, liver dysfunction is very common and can be uh, seen in, in as much as uh, 30 to 40% of patients uh, with uh, short bowel uh, syndrome, immune, uh, IF and on TPN. Also most of this uh, we are resolved uh, over time Approximately 20% uh, of these children with uh, IF and TPN will develop uh, liver failure. However, um, this number are actually declining due to the improvement uh, in TPN, and particularly after the, introdu in the introduction of the new lipid emulsions. The typical change, uh, pathological change uh, associated with IFOD, uh uh, uh, including steatosis, uh, steatal hepatitis, and uh, interhepatic uh, cholestasis. Um, not every patient will develop uh, the liver disease. So the risk factor uh, for the development of uh, liver disease, including um, prematurity, lower birth weight, and the length of uh, remnant bowel if it's too short, or will uh, have more chance to develop liver disease. Duration of TPN, of course, that's the, the uh, common reason. And sepsis, and lack of enteral nutrition. However, when liver failure develops, um, patient will need a uh, transplant or liver transplant, a small bowel combined liver transplant. Another uh, most common complication associated with uh, short bowel and uh, intestinal failure is the small bowel bacteria overgrowth, SIBO. And then the consequence associated with small bowel, short bowel, uh, small bowel overgrowth will be food allergy and eating disorder. Patient have a bad appetite, poor growth, and cholestasis, and also liver fibrosis, cirrhosis, and villous atrophy, malabsorption, and uh, even increased permeability leading to IBD. The third uh, most common complication um, is, um, is um, Cropsy, uh, catheter-related bloodstream infections. And this is a serious complication and can be life-threatening. In some patients, it can happen uh, as frequent as once every month. And this frequent occurrence of um, infection can also lead to loss of vascular access. This is the, uh, one of the indications um, for intestinal and transplant. The critical uh, preventative measures to prevent infection, including uh, good parent uh, education and caregiver education on how to um, properly handle the catheter and standardize, and standardize the, uh, the protocol for catheter management. For example, always use uh, uh, antiseptic, antibiotics, 
the logs whenever the catheter is not in use. So, so management uh, patient with short bowel is complex and it is challenging. Because of this, patients with this uh, chronic condition should be um, best managed by our multi uh, multidisciplinary teams in institutions with uh, intestinal rehab programs. So Dr. Taylor, uh, the surgical director of uh, UF uh, Pediatric Intestinal Rehab Program, uh, will discuss more uh, on this, in this topic. Thank you, Dr. Chan. Um, like, um, like he mentioned, I'm a pediatric surgeon at University of Florida and uh, the surgical director of the um, Pediatric Intestinal Rehabilitation Program. So why, why have one? Um, as, as we know, it's a rare disease, um, but in certain places it seems like if you have a location, you have a center where this is what the clinicians um, and, the, and the other care providers focus on, um, then these patients can actually um, have a much better have much better outcomes, clinical outcomes, and better quality of life. Uh, the patients are very heterogeneous, and they all, because of this, require very individualized care. It's not really a you know a, a one size fits all approach. NAPSCAN, the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, recommends that patients with short bowel syndrome um, on prenatal nutrition for greater than three months be referred to an interdisciplinary intestinal rehabilitation program for consultation or management uh, and evaluation of their overall state. The goals of these multiple disciplinary teams are, um, are many. Uh, it's to provide support of uh, growth, nutrition, and overall patient development. Uh, really prioritizing and pushing for intestinal adaptation and enteral autonomy. You, you might hear of intestinal failure programs as well. And there, we all have the same goals. And a lot of us uh, focus on the more, the more optimistic side that we are rehabilitating these patients. And, and they do have intestinal failure, but we're trying to get them off their parental nutrition. Um, the other thing that we focus on is early treatment of complications. Um, and a lot of patient and family education goes into a lot of what we do. Um, we provide continuity of inpatient and outpatient surgical and medical care so that it's less fractured and these patients can get the care that they need because um, like, we've, like we've referred to many times, they are very complex. Um, and if needed, uh, provide transition to intestinal transplantation um, either within uh, the, that same home institution or um, to another, uh, another facility at the appropriate time. And another thing that we do as multidisciplinary care teams is we um, do everything we can also to advance the field through outreach, collaboration, and research. So at minimum, to have an intestinal rehabilitation program as defined by NAPSCAN, um, a program needs a gastroenterologist, a surgeon, uh, a dietitian, and a nurse. This next slide uh, shows you the overall, the, the, the real big picture, every single, this is your wish list for your intestinal rehabilitation program um, to, to have all these, um, have all the input um, and expertise involved of as many um, care providers as possible. The benefits, um, these interdisciplinary teams provide um, improved patient outcomes and overall survival that has been showed in um, multiple large-scale as well as regional um, studies. Uh, NAPSCAN themselves um, reviewed outcomes and um, have shown that there is significant reduction in the number of septic events per 1,000 catheter days. 
there's a reduction in mortality rate um, from long-term, being a long-term uh, prenatal nutrition. There's a reduction in mortality rate from end-stage liver failure and reduction in mortality rate among patients waiting for a transplant. So even if these patients are not able to be completely rehabilitated um, from an intestinal health standpoint, they do better when they do go to transplant, when they are cared for by an intestinal rehabilitation or an intestinal failure team. So given all the all the aspects of care these patients need, um, it's it, a lot of times, or or uh, having a social worker involved to provide the support that these patients need is critical. And Kimberly Iglesias will be reviewing um, psychosocial needs of these families next. Hi, I'm Kimberly Iglesias. I'm a social worker at UF Health. And I'm just gonna talk briefly about um, what a social worker can do on a multidisciplinary team, particularly when working with children that have complex medical needs. Um, one of the main things that we would be doing is a psychosocial assessment and really looking at um, what referrals and services, um, education, mental health needs there might be with that patient, um, and also trying to bolster whatever natural support system that the patient has, as that can sometimes be missed. Um, and then just providing anticipatory guidance regarding um, multiple medical appointments, insurance issues, things that a family might encounter or a patient might encounter throughout the course of um, having to get their medical care. Um, social workers can also be involved in, the, in a transplant evaluation process if, if that's appropriate for that patient. And they're going to be looking at whether or not there's any contraindications to the transplant process happening for that patient, or if there are, how can we maybe mitigate those things in order to um, proceed with having a successful transplant. So they're gonna look at the social issues of what um, financial, emotional, um, cultural issues there might be, and really try to take any of those barriers and find resources to be able to get that patient the best care that, that they can get. Um, some of the common barriers to care are things like access to health insurance or insurance denials um, and helping a family figure out how to break through some of those things and advocate for their child. Um, social security process, there's um, a lot that comes into play with that, but it's an essential resource for a lot of patients who have chronic medical needs. And so helping walk a family through that or what the appeal process entails if, if they do encounter difficulties in, in accessing those services. A lot of um, issues that people have tend to be financial issues. You know, if you have a child with a chronic medical illness, it might mean that you aren't able to work um, a full-time job because you're having to manage going to medical appointments and um, managing your child's care. And so a lot of financial stressors can hit a family so what we do as the social workers is try to figure out what's the need, what programs are available, um, applying for grants or anything that's out there that's above and beyond what insurance can provide. Um, assessing for just simple things like transportation barriers um, and finding resources to make sure that a child can come to their appointments on a regular basis. Um, and then really anything else that encompasses what the life of that patient is. So if it is um, a 
food insecurity issue or housing issues, um, employment issues, legal aid, all kinds of things like that um, is what a social worker would do to try to find resources and help in that care coordination so that the medical care can be as ideal as possible and that those barriers can be things that hopefully we can work through. I'm Daniel Stewart. I'm a registered dietitian. I work as part of the intestinal rehabilitation program. Um, the main purpose of my role is to help with writing the total parental nutrition orders, managing enteral feeds, and eventually oral feeds as well to slowly transition off of. Nutritional therapy and dietary recommendations must be tailored to the patient's age, body size, sex, lifestyle, eating habits, food preferences, and bowel condition. Every patient is different. There's no one rule that applies to all. Nutritional therapy for intestinal rehabilitation includes oral rehydration, parenteral nutrition, enteral nutrition, vitamin and mineral supplementation, a tailored diet to fit their needs, small, many frequent meals, and also a high fat formula diet. With our short bowel children, we will see them initially every two weeks. As long as they're on parenteral nutrition, they will be seen every two weeks for labs as well as adjustments to the parenteral nutrition. After that, we'll advance them to monthly. Once weaned from parenteral nutrition and seen monthly, we can then advance to every three months once we see that they have hit stability and they are tolerating the, the enteral feeds that we are giving. Over time, as they get older and they've shown more adaptation and more tolerance, we can advance to every six months and then eventually for our older children to yearly. The assessment when they come in, we assess not only their labs, but also their growth, any symptoms they may be having of abdominal pain, of discomfort, stool patterns, but also looking at the input and output, how much fluids and food they consume versus how many times a day they void, as well as overall nutritional status, looking at body fat. Evaluation of liver dysfunction and central line issues also occur at that time. After we visit with the patient, we will sit together as a team and we adjust and discuss what the current total parental nutrition Rx is and adjust it as needed. Every two weeks to every week, we will run a CMP, a MAG, a FOSS, and then triglycerides every two to four weeks until stability is reached. Once parental nutrition is fully weaned, we, go, we will change to monthly labs, then every three months, followed by every six months. Certain labs are only checked annually, like the INR. Certain labs are checked a little bit more frequently, like B12, iron, copper, that are a little bit more sensitive. If DEX is at baseline, then we'll do every one to two years and instead of less often. When we attempt to transition a pediatric patient to enteral feeds, we go really slow. The question I'll often get asked is when to start or what to feed or what's the best mode of delivery or the most sought after question that parents will wanna ask me is when can I start feeding food? Well, the answer is it depends on, your, on the child. Every child's ability to advance feeds, every child's ability to be able to tolerate feeds 
will vary depending on the severity of their short bowel syndrome. For infants, I recommend as much as possible to provide breast milk in lieu of any other commercial formulas due to the hormones and the specific type of proteins found in breast milk. In situations where either one, it is not tolerated, or two, the mother cannot breastfeed, I recommend using elemental formulas due to the risk of allergies with other formulas. When weaning off parental nutrition, the typical way we do it in clinic is to gradually advance the enteral feeds. And as we advance the enteral feeds, we decrease the hours in which they are receiving parental nutrition. Another methodology that some may use would be to reduce the number of administration days versus the administration hours within the day. With doing hourly changes versus day-by-day changes, it carries a lower risk of dehydration and tends to be safer for the patients. Now, some parents tell me that they prefer to reduce days, and I understand and respect that. But due to the safety and effectiveness of reducing by hours versus reducing by days, that is the way we tend to, to, to do things. As we wean off parental nutrition and onto enteral nutrition, there has been instances, and it is sometimes necessary to substitute out the parental nutrition for simple IV hydration, whether it be normal saline, whether it be lactated ringer, as a way to maintain hydration without doing parental nutrition. IV hydration is safer long-term than parental nutrition. Enteral nutrition. The general uh, principles for older children are to do small, frequent meals with separate solids and liquids. They were, I request that they drink no more than 30 minutes before or after mealtime. We avoid caffeinated beverages. We emphasize oral rehydration solutions in combination with water. And then, of course, we tailor the recommendations for the child based on the GI anatomy. If they have duodenal resection, I'm going to look for high sources of iron, calcium, and B vitamins, since those will tend to be low with duodenal resections. With jejunal resections, I tend to see, or we tend to see more malabsorption of carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, trace metals, as well as vitamins. With an ileal resection, it has the same problems as the jejunal, but also we see problems in B12, bile salts, and with fat-soluble vitamins. With colonic resections, we see difficulty maintaining fluid balance as well as electrolyte stability. The colon is the continuity. An optimal diet for a colonic resection is going to be a diet low in simple carbohydrates like sucrose and lactose, as well as low in overall fat that could lead to malabsorption. For kids that have jejunostomies, we limit simple carbohydrates and simple sugars. What we find for most of our patients that are having problem with loose stools or diarrhea is to add increased soluble fibers as a way to thicken stools. We also have with us today, Dr. Angela Pham, who is an adult GI specialist who works as part of the transition as well as short bowel syndrome team. 
working working with adults, whereas we work with children. All right. Hello, everybody. Um, I uh, will be discussing the pharmacotherapy of and treatment of short bowel syndrome. So my name is Angela Pham. I am an assistant professor here at the University of Florida in the Division of Gastroenterology, and I also direct the IBD program. And um, in tangential, I also see a lot of the TPN patients and uh, short bowel syndrome patients due to management of TPN. And one of my main goals in intestinal rehab is to wean short bowel syndrome patients off of their TPN as much as possible. And so to start with, I'd like to talk about some of the medications that we use in treatment of short bowel syndrome. So in brief, um, there's many classes that we use. There, uh, the first, we, we use antibiotics. Uh, one of those antibiotics is rifaximine. And that's due to the fact that whenever you have short bowel syndrome or a change in your anatomy, that can lead to uh, dysbiosis or change your microbiome. And uh, as Dr. Chang had gone over, you can end up with uh, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, and that is often treated with antibiotics such as rifaximine. Then there's also anti-diarrheal agents such as lamotil or loperamide. Um, Anti-secretin agents such as octreotide can be given um, subcutaneously or added to your TPN regimen. And then we have our bile acid sequestrants, which are uh, either clusted or cholestyramine, which will help with bile acid diarrhea. There are also chloretic agents uh, such as ursodiol, which help prevent some of the liver uh, side effects of TPN. Then we have our GLP-2 analogs, such as tadouglutide, which helps grow your intestinal villi. It's an intestinotrophic agent, and that will help us uh, in our goal of weaning off of TPN as well. Then we have histamine, histamine receptor blockers, H2 receptor blockers, just such as famotidine. And then we have our proton pump inhibitors, such as omeprazole, which uh, both uh, decrease gastric acid secretion and uh, decrease um, uh, ostomy output, hopefully. And then we also have our recombinant human growth hormone. So um, to break down some of these medications even further and some of their side effects and why we use them. So Acid suppression uh, is often used in adults um, outside of short bowel syndrome, um, uh, the most common being uh, omeprazole and uh, pantoprazole. Um, we uh, use omeprazole and pantoprazole as well as famotidine in short bowel syndrome due to the fact that you have uh, increased secretion of gastric fluid. In patients, um, you can end up with uh, upwards of 1.5 liters of gastric acid secretion or just gastric fluid in general. And anytime you can block those gastric secretions, that will lead to overall decrease in um, output. And so we will often maximize our um, omeprazole or pantoprazole as much as possible in trying to reduce gastric secretions. In terms of bile acid sequestrants, such as cholestin and cholestyramine, um, patients who have had um, major surgeries can end up with increased bile acid and that is not absorbed. And this will lead to diarrhea due to the fact that um, excess bile that reaches the colon will lead to increased osmotic fluid release. Um, and so if you uh, sop up some of that bile acid, that will hopefully lead to decreased um, output. 
Uh, next, we have uh, octreotide. Uh, as mentioned, I often will either add this to uh, a patient's TPN regimen or we can um, use this in sub-Q fashion. I usually will start with a dose of 100 uh, micrograms, uh, BID to TID. Um, the only thing that I would say uh, to, to caution is this can hinder intestinal adaptation and then also increases the risk of cholelithiasis and um, can cause cholestasis. And then lastly, our antidiarrheal agents, which actually are um, what I use first, so our first line in treatment uh, to prevent diarrhea. So what uh, loperamide, I will often use this. Um, I'll tell patients to take it 20 to 30 minutes prior to eating, and this can be taken around the clock. All right, so to move on, one of the newest uh, agents we have in treatment of intestinal failure and short bowel syndrome is tadugletide. Tadugletide is a GLP-2 uh, agonist. It is a uh, glucagon-like peptide that is secreted from the L cells of the ileum and cecum naturally. And it is a potent intestinotrophic hormone, which means that it increases the Crips cell proliferation and survival, and therefore increases the blood flow to your gut mucosa. It also inhibits your gut motility and gastric secretions. It also induces epithelial proliferation of the small and large intestine, and it also inhibits uh, death of the enterocytes or enterocyte apoptosis. Um, there are receptors throughout the GI tract in the neuroendocrine cells, the myofibroblasts, and the enteric neurons. And um, whenever a patient has had a major distal small bowel resection or colon resection, this can then lead to GLP-2 deficiency. And to duplicate what it does is it is identical to the native uh, GLP-2 uh, except for the fact that it has a substitution of alanine by glycine at the second position of the N-terminus, resulting in um, an, a more extensive half-life. Um, it's approved for use in the U.S. Uh, and has been approved since 2012, and most recently was approved for a pediatric patient uh, one year of age or older since 2019. The standard dosing is 0.05 milligrams per kilogram subcutaneously once a day. So let's go over some of the trials that have been done on tadugletide. So there was a phase three trial in pediatric patients that led to uh, the FDA approval of tadugletide. It was based on a 24-week study, uh, which covered 59 pediatric patients ages 1 to 17 years old. Patients were randomized to either tadugletide in standard dosing or 0.025 milligrams per kilogram per day. Um, so the standard of care dosing was 0.05 milligrams per kilogram per day. The primary endpoint was to um, see the number of participants who achieved at least a 20% reduction in parental nutrition or IV fluid at the end of week 24. So what were the results of this study? It was found that 69% of patients, or 18 out of the 26 that were studied, who received tadugletide at a dose of 0.05 milligrams per kilogram per day, reduced their um, prenal su supplementation volume by 20% or more at six months. Um, prenal supplementation requirements were reduced by at least 23 milliliters per kilogram per day, which was about a 42% reduction from baseline. 
So out of all the patients that were enrolled, 38% of patients were able to reduce their parenteral supplementation infusion by at least one day per week. So that's pretty considerable. That's autonomy from parenteral supplementation one day out of the week. And then a further 12% or, or three out of 26 patients who received the standard dosing uh, were completely weaned off of their sup uh, parenteral supplementation. And in total, the mean reduction in time spent on parenteral nutrition uh, was three hours per day reduced. So some precautions about the use of tadeuglutide. So because it is an intestinotrophic agent, it does cause growth of, of any um, adenomas that are already existent in the colon. And that is more of a concern in adult patients, of course. So um, fecal occult blood testing is recommended prior to initiating treatment with tadeuglutide in uh, children and adolescents. And colonoscopy is required if there is unexplained blood in the stool. So if there is visible blood or the patient has a positive fecal occult blood, they definitely do need a colonoscopy. And then subsequent fecal occult blood testing is recommended annually in children and adolescents if they are on tadeuglutide. Thereafter, colonoscopy is recommended for all patients who have been on tadeuglutide for a year, and then every five years thereafter while on continuous treatment, and if they have new or unexplained GI bleeding. And then I will give the microphone over to Dr. Taylor to cover the surgical interventions. Thank you, Dr. Pham. So not every patient who has in a shortcut syndrome or intestinal failure is going to be a surgical candidate. Um, for a, a surgical candidate for some kind of intervention to make them absorb better, to make their bowel longer. Um, so the things that we look at and when we start thinking about it are if we know that the patient has a short length of intestine relative to their age and size, um, and also what of their intestine is remaining, then the other thing that's important to look at is how dilated is it and is can we provide the patient with any options to create a longer length of intestine to allow the enteral contents to have more time to bathe those enterocytes and to provide more um, time and exposure uh, to the enterocytes for nutritional absorption. So the first type of operation that I will describe is, uh, is called, it's, it's got two names. Um, it's called the Bianchi, um, the eponym um, named after the surgeon who first described it, but we also call it the LILT, the Longitudinal Intestinal Lengthening and Tailoring Operation. So the idea about this is that it reduces the caliber of the dilated segment that is undergoing adaptation and then increases the bowel length. And the way we do that is that you take the dilated length of bowel um, and you divide it longitudinally down its midline. So we take a stapling device um, and splitting the blood vessels as they come off the mesentery um, onto the underside of the, uh, the bowel and then we staple and divide this larger lumen um, into two smaller lumens. And then we take those lengths um, and then we anastomose them, we sew them to each other in an isosperistaltic direction. Um, it's been shown that the residual bowel can increase by 50%. And um, studies looking at these patients have shown that as many as almost 90% of them can be weaned from TPN after the procedure. But these can be, these are very specific situations that you choose these patients for these operations. Uh, and various complications um, can arise from these complex operations, um, not limited to leakage and stricter formation, which then may then be get 
uh, need for more operations, uh, which then can cause more issues related to abdominal adhesions, uh, bowel obstructions, and things like that. Um, and then, of course, risk of injury to blood to the intestinal blood supply as you're purposefully splitting the blood vessels, uh, excuse me, the branches of the blood vessels, uh, to be able to divide that larger lumen um, to make it into two smaller lumens. So those are serious considerations when looking at a patient. Um, if they are an operative candidate, the, the type of operation to, to offer them. The other type of operation that we can do for intestinal lengthening is called a STEP. That's short, for, that's short for serial, transverse, enteroplasty. And what that is, is we take um, a dilated bowel, and I should also mention that bowel needs to be dilated to at least four centimeters, if not greater, in order to be a candidate for any of these operations. Um, and we um, staple the bowel tra um, transversely in a stepwise fashion so that you create almost a zigzag-like channel um, that is by then default narrower and a little longer, providing additional length and forcing increased time for passage of the internal contents um, in the bowel. Um, so all these staple lines then need to be reinforced um, so that we have less of a leak complication. So for this, you can have uh, over 50% increase in residual bowel length with this lengthening procedure. And it's been shown that over half of these patients can be weaned from TPN after this procedure. And in this and the other bowel lengthening surgeries, certainly there's, it's not a rapid necessarily increase, um, uh, decrease in TPN requirements. So when you're talking about an operation with these families, you also need to set their expectations for what to, what to anticipate after surgery. Um, when you compare the Bianchi or the Lilt with the STEP procedure, there isn't that much of a difference in the long-term outcomes as far as time off TPN, needing to go to intestinal transplant, need for reoperations. So a lot of times the operation that's chosen is also the operation that the surgeon has done the most and is most comfortable with, with their outcomes. There's a third type of lengthening operation that was described within the past 10 years called the SILT, um, short for spiral intestinal lengthening and tailoring. And it's what that is describing is taking that dilated length of bowel and making a spiral incision throughout that dilated length and then repositioning, reorienting those um, segments of bowel so that you ultimately have a longer piece of intestine. Um, and getting it that way versus um, stapling it the stepwise way or um, dividing it completely down at center. So when all, in, in considering a patient then for, for the, the ultimate surgery, one could say, um, intestinal transplant, it actually has a, a little less to do with whether or not the patient has undergone um, these different surgical lengthening procedures and more to do with the other comorbidities and complications they've been dealing with just by having intestinal failure. So how progressive or advancing is their um, intestinal failure associated liver disease? Now, bilirubin greater than 4.5 for greater than two months, despite changing lipid scheduling, despite changing the type of, of lipid, be it SMOF or Megamin, that you're providing um, with the patient's peritoneal nutrition um, would be an indication, as well as the, any combination of a lab values such as elevated bilirubin, low albumin, and increased INR, or other labs that are suggestive of portal hypertension. Um, another indication for pediatric intestinal transplant um, is thrombosis of three out of four 
uh, uh, main, excuse me, central veins uh, that are required for, that are options for the patient to get their their line access for parental nutrition. So do they have thrombos three out of four of the following? Their subclavian veins, internal veins, or their brachiocephalic. Had they required multiple admissions, uh, specifically as described um, in the literature, two admissions to the ICU um, with the need for um, ventilator support or inotrope therapy um, because of sepsis or other complications specifically related to intestinal failure. So this brings in, again, the importance of uh, central line care and the implications of a central line infection of these patients. Um, are they suffering from uh, um, acute diffuse intestinal infarction with liver failure? Um, and then if they have had intestinal transplant in the past, uh, you can be a candidate for a second intestinal transplant. Overall, since the first uh, intestinal transplants were done in children since the mid 80s, uh, there was a peak in the in the mid 2000s, but actually the rate of pediatric intestinal transplant are decreasing worldwide, and that is largely to the success of all these multidisciplinary intestinal rehabilitation programs that have come together and really improved the outcomes for these patients. Okay, so in the second half, uh, we are going to discuss the transition uh, adolescent patient with short bowel uh, to the adult care. So today, uh, due to the advances of overall nutritional, surgical, and pharmacological strategies, 90% of the children with chronic vision survive into the adult age, including um, the short bowel syndrome patient. So in U.S., half million youth with special healthcare need transition each year. This is a big number, including those with uh, short bowel syndromes. Although many short bowel patients uh, and we develop uh, enteral autonomy through the childhood and adolescence. Some patients will remain dependent on uh, home TPN and other complex uh, life-suspending therapies into the through uh, adulthood, so requiring transition to adult services. However, probably due to the rarity of the short bowel syndrome compared to other chronic conditions, no transition protocol are available addressed to this uh, specific pediatric onset conditions. And unlike adult onset short bowel syndrome and uh, intestinal failure, children with pediatric onset short bowel grow up, uh, rely on the team of uh, professionals and the family care uh, givers for their everyday survival. So as more patients with short bowel are now surviving into adulthood, Patients and their family often struggle with uh, transition to adult care. However, successful transition to uh, adult care is not just one day process procedure, but a gradual process that requires preparing patients and family uh, over several years. Therefore, um, we are going to go through, talk about uh, um, this process in, 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 in this, uh, the next um, few uh, minutes. So I'd like to take some time to talk to you about why the transition portion of uh, treatment of short bowel syndrome is so crucial. So we all know that young adulthood and adolescence is a time of profound instability by necessity for all adolescents and young adults, not just those that have chronic health conditions. This is a time of transformation and patients are leaping into the first throes of independence or adulting as we so put it now. And those who don't do it well um, are primed to fail throughout adulthood. It's, we need to set up our young adults for a life of success. 
And so for adolescents with chronic intestinal failure, what this means is that they now have to take over all of their care. And that means that not only do they have to graduate from their pediatric provider to an adult provider, but they also have to graduate from, you know, their parents taking care of them to learning to take care of themselves. So it's a, a multi-pronged step approach. So um, our youths must learn to autonomously manage a condition that up to this point has been carried out by their parents and caregivers. And for parents and caregivers, the process of supporting their child's independence and managing their own health care correctly is a very daunting process. Um, and so successful transition really relies on the normalization of growth and development, promoting independent behaviors, improving compliance with therapy, and uh, making a foundation for good health behaviors and consumerism. Um, and that's what successful transition may look like. However, the failure of transition, what that looks like is non-adherence to medical therapy, leading to poor healthcare attendance and missing clinics and missing medications, and therefore uh, deterioration of disease, possibly with life-threatening uh, consequences. And so, as you can see, this is a very critical time uh, in which to get the pediatric to adult transition of care right in order to set up our young adults for a lifetime of healthy um, habits and uh, correct health consumerism. So as an example, uh, I present a case here, like uh, this case, uh, SF is a 13-year-old is a, is a boy with short bowel syndrome. And initially only 10 centimeter short bowel remaining secondary to uh, atresia and extensive bowel resection. And with jejunosomy and then with uh, home TPN support, and who along with uh, his parents and had been followed in pediatric multidisciplinary uh, short bowel clinic. And, but following the three bowel uh, lengthening and surgical procedure and other nutritional and uh, pharmacological intervention, his bowel uh, has been successfully increased to 80 centimeters and has been weaned off, actually was weaned off TPN uh, at age four. However, Following the uh, anastomosis, the jejunal uh, colonic uh, anastomosis, and he has developed multiple complications as listed here, uh, like including GI dysmotinity, recurrent uh, uh, anastomotic uh, uh, ulcers, and very early onset IBD, intractable small bowel uh, bacterial overgrowth, and feeding intolerance. And that requires daily or intermittent uh, TPN and bi-weekly and monthly follow-up in our multidisciplinary uh, short bowel clinic. So given the complexity of this of his condition, I, I, we feel uh, it is very likely and he will need this long-term uh, TPN support and also the intestinal rehab program support and through the adulthood. So, um, so how do we assist uh, adolescents with uh, short bowel and uh, chronic uh, intestinal failure as they transition from a pediatric to uh, adult extended model of health care. So uh, this, is, uh, this slide uh, showed uh, six steps uh, to transition pediatric patient into adult care center. Uh, to implement each step requiring uh, a good coordination and communication between pediatric and adult uh, uh, health care provider. So uh, the, so it is recommended we should begin um, the transition process in early uh, adolescence at age uh, 
12 to 14, and continue this process into adult, uh, young adulthood at an age um, 18 and to 26. This would allow sufficient time for transition, preparation, planning, tracking, and follow through. So I will, uh, together with Dr. Farm, uh, go through uh, these six steps uh, one by one. Um, so this is uh, this slide showing the step one. Is um, so in this step, the pediatric provider uh, will develop transition and care policy guide uh, with input from youth and the family, and not describe approach to transition, address privacy and consent and also clarified age for transfer to adult conditions. We will educate all the staff, including uh, uh, you know, uh, okay, uh, about uh, the practice approach to transition uh, and distinct role of youth and, and parent and pediatric and adult conditions in transition process and in, uh, not also in taking into account the cultural preference. We will display um, the transition and care policy guide somewhere also accessible in the practice uh, space and discuss and share with youth and fair uh, caregiver and beginning at age um, 12 uh, to 14 and regularly review uh, as part of the ongoing care. So uh, a transition coordinator in this setting of uh, multidisciplinary uh, clinic and may be best prepared for the direct uh, transition of youth with short bowel syndromes. Okay, so um, to kind of build on what Dr. Chang uh, had, had built, um, this first step really doesn't involve adult providers as much per se. Um, at this point, the, the patient is around 12 to 14, and that's when the transition process really should be introduced. And um, what that really entails is really making sure that providers are on the same page, page with the patient and their families with what their goals are in this, this transition process. And um, at this point, um, the adult providers really just need to uh, be in the loop uh, about what the patient's goals are, kind of understand what the transition process looks like from a, you know, a big picture perspective where your center is and work in tandem with the pediatric providers to make sure that, you know, the, the ground is set and paved and ready for when that transition actually happens. So um, there's really not much to do from an adult, uh, the, the adult side of things. Uh, but more so just make sure that you are kept in the loop as the patient uh, grows in and, and gets closer to transition. So in step two, uh, this is tracking and monitoring. Mm -hmm. The main job is to establish criteria and, uh, and process for and the process to, uh, for identify the transition age use and develop process uh, to tracking patient progress through uh, each transition steps, integrating with uh, um, the medical electrical medical record and when possible. Again, uh, at step two, uh, adult providers really aren't uh, involved in patient care so much as just being familiar with the uh, the tracking modalities involved with uh, tracking uh, progress of transition. Um, there are a variety of surveys and uh, measurement tools available to track progress. And I would just suggest that adult providers be familiar with these uh, tracking devices and um, again, continue to be uh, good communicators and, and be uh, collaborative with your uh, GI colleagues or your pediatric GI colleagues. 
So this is step, uh, this slide showing the step three and uh, its transition readiness uh, or orientation to adult practice. So the pediatric provider in this step will conduct a now regular transition readiness assessment, beginning again uh, at age uh, as early as uh, like 14 to 16 years old, and to identify and and discuss with uh, the patient and the caregiver their need for self care and then how to use health care uh, services. So transition patient and also from pediatric to uh, adult enteral uh, uh, and parenteral formula when possible and when appropriate and offering uh, education and resources on, on needed skill identified uh, through this transition readiness assessment. One thing that has to be remembered as part of the transition protocol is we have to train and teach these young patients how to manage their own parental nutrition or enteral nutrition needs and help them understand that if not managed correctly, complications that can arise, some of these complications possibly being life-threatening. I teach them things like how to care for their sites. They're on tube feeds for enteral nutrition. I'll teach them how to care for the, the, the G-tube management. I teach them how to manage and adapt their enteral nutrition if they start to have side effects so that as they take over the care from their parents and become responsible for themselves, they understand what it takes to be responsible for their own nutritional and or intestinal care. At uh, the point of step three, adult providers really uh, should be giving an opportunity for their patients and their families to interface with the adult world. Um, at this point, it would be uh, a good idea to have uh, welcome packets ready and uh, have contacts ready in case uh, the families and, their, and the patient really wants to uh, start asking questions or, or providing introductions. And then just provide an FAQ to patients and that way they start to feel more comfortable with the process of transition as we get closer and closer to the actual um, transition uh, into the adult world. So uh, in step four, um, so transition planning. So the pediatric uh, provider's uh, job is to develop and regularly update the plan of care, preparing the patient and caregiver for adult approach to care and determine the need for decision-making support and making referral to legal resources when appropriate and planning um, for uh, op optimal timing of transfer and uh, assist the patient in identifying an uh, 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 adult condition and provide a link um, to insurance resources, self-care management information, and community support service, and obtain consent um, for releasing of uh, uh, medical information. At step four, adult providers at that point really need to be prepared to take over care of the patient. Um, at this point, if there are any questions about the patient's medical history or ongoing care, this is a perfect time to collaborate with your pediatric GI colleague to get any questions answered in preparation for your first visit with the patient and their family. Um, make sure you uh, have a pre-visit appointment reminder for your patient. Uh, for example, if 
um, your clinic is in a location that, that's different from their pediatric GI provider, make sure you uh, make this very apparent to patients and their family so there's no confusion or getting lost before their first appointment, which can be pretty startling and daunting. And then um, this would be a good time to maybe even, you know, introduce yourself via email or phone call to kind of make everyone feel a little bit more comfortable before your first meeting. So this is all just setting the tone for uh, your very first visit. Again, for the youth with uh, short bowel syndrome who dependent on TPN, it's important not forget to schedule two to four uh, shared consultations. So step five, transfer of care or initiate the and visit in adult service. So in these steps, and the pediatric provider now will complete the transfer package, confirm the date of first adult condition appointment with patient, and then prepare letters with transfer package and send it to the adult clinician and confirm receipt of transfer package and communicate with adult clinicians. And also confirm pediatric clinician responsibility for care until patient is seen by adult clinician and then we can transfer the, the care. So for adult GI providers, this is the point at which you finally interface with patients and their families. And I think for me, the biggest point of um, contention or worry is how are pediatricians different than adult doctors. And there's a lot of differences. And um, I always want to make sure that I start to introduce the whole idea of um, differences in monitoring for fertility, differences in cancer surveillance, uh, differences in uh, the uh, the amount of procedures we do, for example, um, more frequent colonoscopies and endoscopies. And these are all differences that need to really be uh, gone over in detail so that there's no uh, confusion or concerns. Um, and then this is a good point at which to go over any of the transition readiness scales that uh, were filled out by the patient and um, identify uh, the, the deficiencies that the patient or their families have that could um, help with improvement in self-care. So um, if there are deficiencies, make sure you offer education and resources on needed skills, and then review uh, the health priorities of the patient and their family, and make sure that you're all on the same page in terms of goals of care. And then lastly, update and share with the young adult and their, med their medical summary and emergency care plan um, in case any anything does arise after hours. So the last step of, uh, of transfer uh, care is the step six is the, is the transfer completion. And then for the pediatric provider, we'll contact um, the patient and their uh, caregiver about uh, six to uh, three to six months after the last pediatric visit to confirm the attendance uh, at the first adult appointment and also make sure uh, to obtain feedback on their experience with transition process and communicate with adult practice uh, and conforming completion of the transfer and the offer consultation assistance as needed and build ongoing and collaborative uh, partnership. So for adult GI providers, at this point, um, the uh, umbilical cord has been cut, so to speak. Um, the patient is completely transferred over to your care, hopefully. And at this point, I always want to make sure I tell the patient that I continue to collaborate with the pediatric GI providers and their uh, previous team. 
to make the patient feel as if we're all a, a family that is collaborating and getting the best care for them. And so it, it's not uncommon for me to go back and contact um, the pediatric team to to get you know any reassurance about you know next steps or if there's any um, clarifications that are needed. So I, I make sure to remind the patient all the time that that there is frequent collaboration. Um, and then I also want to make sure that at this point um, the patient is also graduating from care of, from their parents hopefully as well. So the graduation from pediatric provider to adult provider has been made. Um, the next step is graduation from the care of the patient to care of the, um, the, the, the parents, the parents taking care of the patient to the patient taking care of themselves. And so at this point, we have to make sure that if the patient is comfortable with their parents or their um, caregivers still being a part of their care, that proxy forms are, are signed. And then as care is ongoing, I always make sure to elicit feedback from patients and their families to make sure that things are going as they had anticipated and um, that there are uh, no concerns that are, need to be answered as, as, care, uh, as the transfer is uh, complete. So lastly, to um, get close to wrapping things up, I wanted to go over what the potential barriers to optimal transition of care uh, may be. So there are uh, multiple different ways that there could be hiccups along the way in transfer of care. The patient or parent and caregiver may be reluctant to transfer from pediatric care to adult care, uh, as this is just a whole different world. It may be a whole different location, and um, the pediatric care provider has been a part of uh, the patient's care for uh, up upwards of a decade. And so there's a lot of familiarity and comfort there, and going to a new provider is, is very daunting and scary. Um, there are often there is often inadequate communication from pediatric clini clinicians to adult providers. Um, for example, if there are there may be lack of uh, physical records, um, there are no uh, 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 op notes might be missing or procedure reports might be missing. Um, if it is actually a location that is remote from from your center, you may not actually have an ongoing relationship with a pediatric care provider, and that can lead to uh, difficulties in communication. Um, there may be difficulty in locating adult clinicians who have specialized knowledge about youth with pediatric, pediatric onset short bowel syndrome. Uh, other barriers are that patients may not be adequately prepared to care for their home parental nutrition or enrol nutrition on their own. There could be loss of insurance coverage as the patient graduates out of their parents' insurance. There may be lack of quality social support as the patient has uh, moved location or has gone on to college and lost their previous social support. And then lastly, there may be a lack of awareness of community resources for young adults with short bowel syndrome and or chronic intestinal failure. And this is where you as a provider should step in and provide patients with the resources that they may need. So next we have a uh, Kimberly Iglesias, who is a pediatric social worker who will discuss with you some of the myriad of resources we have available for our patients. And so we have some examples of some resources that are out there, um, all free online that you can um, either refer your families to or utilize yourself when um, trying to sit and do uh, patient education. So one of the things that we've talked about is that period of going from adolescent to adulthood and all of the things that need to be learned. So every, every person has to learn how to balance a checkbook and uh, do their own laundry and make meals for themselves and all of those skills. 
Um, and here's a resource called overcomingobstacles.org that um, helps prepare some of those problem solving skills training um, modules. So if a patient's interested in kind of honing those skills, this is a great resource for that. Um, and, and as we've mentioned, um, patients that do have a chronic medical need have even more at stake if um, they're not able to master some of those skills. So we just wanna make sure that families and the patients have all of the resources available to them to be able to make that transition as smooth as possible. There's also um, the Oli Foundation is a wonderful website specifically for patients that are on um, IV nutrition or enteral feeding nutrition. Um, there's an online forum where people can support each other and kind of identify with one another um, in a shared experience of what they go through. They share resources. Um, there's scholarship um, opportunities that are listed on the website. Um, all kinds of wonderful things to help support patients as they are, again, moving in from being an adolescent and into an adult. And here's just a few other resources. Um, the Sick Kids website, I believe um, we have um, a example of what they provide. There's this health passport that um, a patient can fill out. And at the end of it, they're able to print that off. And it's this very handy dandy one page has everything that that is um, important and pertinent about their medical history, contact numbers for physicians, previous surgeries, everything that they would need to know. And instead of having a huge notebook of all of that information, this allows for that to be printed off all in just one to two pages. So um, these are just some of the online resources that are available that we wanted to cover. All right. Well, thank you everybody for uh, attending this uh, comprehensive review on treatment of uh, short bowel syndrome. I just wanted to lastly focus on the fact that uh, as you now have realized, uh, this is a very, very complicated, potentially complicated process. And um, it really takes, it has a lot of moving parts and it has a lot of team members. And so it be, it would be very important to designate one team member, a, a care coordinator, transition coordinator of sorts, or patient navigator to really um, coordinate all of the uh, paperwork and all of the moving parts of, of this you know, complex process. And so um, just make sure that either if you don't have that person to designate a team member that, that can keep an eye on all these moving parts. So with that, I'd like to wrap things up and um, thank you everyone for listening. This activity is certified by the University of Florida College of Medicine for Physicians and by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated for nurses and pharmacists. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash SWN860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA, Incorporated.